From training to performing, join our Big League Conversation. Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy. Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 54. We're actually going to have a little bit of a change of pace this week as we have a guest host filling in for me. John O'Neill, our director of performance at Cressy Sports Performance Massachusetts, is going to take the baton and help out with some content creation. He's always been super intrigued with the sprint, agility, and quickness aspect of training, so he's going to be interviewing movement expert Lee Taft on the topic as it relates to improving baseball performance. You've got a big-time nerd in John with respect to movement skills, and you've got one of the best in the business and Lee, so we're in for a really good show. This podcast interview is timely as Lee's popular Certified Speed and Agility Coach course is on sale for $150 off this week. I don't get behind many certifications, but this is one that over-delivers on a number of fronts. I actually think so highly of Lee and his work that we invited Lee to film it at our Massachusetts facility just a few years ago, and it's now become mandatory viewing for all of our staff members at both Cressy Sports Performance Facilities. I'd strongly encourage you to check it out, especially at this great discount. Head to ericcressy.com backslash CSAC to learn more. Again, that's E-R-I-C-C-R-E-S-S-E-Y.com backslash CSAC to learn more and take advantage of this great discount. What's up, guys? My name is John O'Neill. I'm the director of performance at Cressy Sports Performance in Massachusetts. Today I'm doing a guest host for Eric, um, and I'm bringing in uh, a mentor and a friend of mine uh, named Lee Taft, who's a coach known for speed development. So I'm going to turn it over to him and let him introduce himself. All right. Hey, John, thanks so much for taking the time to have me on and asking. I really appreciate it. I'm such a big fan of yours and uh, Eric and all that you guys have done for uh you know, for you know, it's funny because everybody thinks that you know, obviously your niche is baseball, but the stuff that you do is so prevalent for every athlete. So huge fan, thanks for having me on, and uh, you know, I, I've been in uh, the profession for quite a while now, and and because of guys like you and the research that you do and the clinical studies and trying things and then sharing it with the rest of us, you know, I'm a lifelong learner and. Uh, the older I get, I feel like uh, the less I know in terms of there's so much more stuff coming out. But, you know, I just I kind of started my career as a phys ed teacher, um, you know, immediately went into strength and conditioning. And uh, so for you know the past three decades, I've kind of been in the, the field of coaching and strength and conditioning and uh, find myself, uh, like I said, a lifelong learner. And, you know, thankfully, guys like you keep us uh, keep us on our toes and staying sharp. Well, I appreciate that, Lee. Uh, what's your day-to-day look like right now? Yeah, well, right now it's, um, you know, doing a lot of virtual type stuff because of obviously our current situation here, but we spend a lot of time creating content, a lot of writing, a lot of producing of video, short videos, uh, got some projects coming up, um, just kind of launched a little virtual program for kids that are stuck at home and can't do a lot. Um, so that's kind of what's going on right now and also doing several podcasts and things like that of my own. So yeah, staying busy. Awesome. Uh, so you're definitely known uh, for, for speed development and, and change of direction speed. 
Uh, how did that become your niche? Well, you know, it's funny. I uh, the other day was on a podcast with a bunch of interns through this company, and uh, that, that that question came up. And and really, when I look back at it, it, it's funny how in strength and conditioning, things that you're that, that you're pretty good at is where we tend to go. A lot of times, you'll see you know big, strong guys just love the weight room. That that's a it's a passion for them. Well, I was not a big guy. Um, I was fairly strong, but I wasn't a big guy, but I, I was always fast. I was quick. So I played college athletics, played four sports in high school. And, you know, my, you know, my ability to, you know, move and be real quick was always there. So it fascinated me. And then I started to study it. I started to look more at it. And even when I was in college, I kind of started to break down why we do certain things. And But really what got me, John, was when my coaches used to say, well, you can't do that. You can't take that step or whatever. And I kept thinking, well, I'm not purposely doing it. So it kind of started me down the road of studying what is speed? What does it really mean? And, and you know, why do we do things that we do? So that's what got me intrigued. You know, I was quick. I, I got interested in learning why I was quick and then why other athletes were quick. And, uh, and it just kind of led me down this path. So, it's, yeah, it's been really cool to, to study it. Awesome. Uh, let's shift gears a little bit. So we'll get into uh, some baseball specific stuff for our audience. And, and yeah. that'll probably carry us throughout most of the podcast here. Um, but I know you've worked with a lot of baseball players in the past. Um, what are the kind of the top tier things that you're trying to look for in youth baseball players in terms of uh, qualities that you're trying to develop? Yeah, well, so if we if we talk about younger athletes, first of all, we're you know, I'm re just real big and let's develop a let's develop a really good athlete. You know, let's develop somebody that has the ability to perform what I like to call the seven movement patterns of speed. So, you know, just to quickly review that, that would be the ability to accelerate straight ahead and then the ability to sprint, the ability to shuffle laterally, the ability to laterally run, or some people might call that a crossover, but laterally run. And then we might have to have the ability to backpedal even a couple steps in baseball and then hip turn to be able to retreat and then be able to jump vertically. So, and now if we get a young athlete that can do those seven patterns really well, what we find is the sport itself and playing the sport and being taught the various positions of the sport that that brings out the kind of like the specific movements or almost like the the identity of how a baseball player moves because the sport demands you to move a certain way. So when I deal with young athletes and I want to develop athleticism or speed and quickness in them, it's about just developing them as an athlete first and then allowing the baseball exposure to bring out the baseball skills. Now, having said that, if I get a young kid, maybe even a 10, 11, 12-year-old kid who's really struggling, maybe getting to their backhand side on a ground ball, maybe they're an infielder, especially a short infielder, um, you know, then we got to be able to take that pure athleticism that they have, that they've developed, and now give them a little bit of a nudge into how and to do that with you know, being able to reach their hand across their body to, to, to make a backhand play. And there's various ways we can do that. But first and foremost, with any kid, any sport, especially baseball, if we can give them that good foundation of athleticism, we're so far ahead of the game. Lee, I think that's an awesome answer, especially bringing up the seven patterns. I mean, I've seen you speak multiple times, and um, I think that was a light bulb moment for me as, as well as other coaches. Uh, 
when we first come into the industry, we learn, you know, so there's the squat hinge, push and pull in the weight room uh, back from Dan John and Mike Boyle stuff. Yeah. Uh, how did you originally come up with the seven patterns of movement? Was that yours? Was that taken from somewhere else? Was that um, developed over a long period of time? Can you speak a little bit on the, the origin of coming up with those seven? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So early on when I was, um, when I was young in the profession, I, one of the things that I, for, for whatever reason, and again, back when I first started doing this in the later eighties and nineties, I didn't have access to YouTube. I couldn't just, you know, bring something up real quick and watch, you know? So I, so there was a lot of time just watching. And, but what I used to do is we used to have these big old clunky cameras and I would set them up in my facility or in my garage or, and I would, I would film myself going through various movements. And I just, all I wanted to do was see what it is that, um, 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 how, how does my, like, how does my body move in these different directions and these different patterns? So what I started to do is say, okay, if I'm, if I'm playing any sport, particularly a team sport, I'm going to have to move in these directions. And then I'm going to have to have variations of those directions. So I just started to put together, all right, if I'm going to teach somebody else this, what are the simple patterns that we have to do? And that was really what I came up with, with those seven movement patterns and knowing that there's variations because I can move on any angle. Like I can combine kind of a, like, let's say there was a, a bunt hit at like 30 degrees off to my right. Well, now I'm accelerating forward, but my initial step is kind of like that lateral run concept just because it was off center. So immediately it forces me to open to the front side and then run through. So that's how it came out. I just started playing with it. I'm thinking, all right, can I keep this simple? And those were the seven patterns that we came up with. And then you add like even jumping. Well, we can jump off two feet, land on two feet, which is a jump. Then I can leap and I can hop. So that stuff kind of gets added in later. But the initial seven were just stuff that I started playing with. And also having a phys ed background, we had to learn all the locomotion type patterns. And that kind of helped give me a real good framework. Awesome. Uh, so for the listeners, uh, for those of you who maybe are in the, in the baseball community more than the strength and conditioning community, uh, a couple of the patterns that or would be maybe difficult to picture unless you put it in context. Uh, a lateral run step is is very similar to a base dealer, so how they take off. Yeah. Um, and then a hip turn is the other one that sounds a little obscure. Uh, a hip turn is like, think a picture a center fielder, the ball is hit directly over their head. They're not backpedaling for a while. They're just quickly repositioning and going. So it's it's basically turning your body around. Um, exactly. And I think that'll that, uh, that'll help clarify, especially the other ones like acceleration and sprinting and shuffling and backpedaling. I think people will be able to picture um, yeah. speaking on the lateral run step. Um, can you elaborate on one, how you teach that and two, why it's important to uh, do it that way versus a traditional crossover step? Yeah. And uh, I really am thankful you asked that question, because I think that's uh, in, in, in every in every aspect of uh, fitness or strength and conditioning, there are sticking points we all have, right? We, you know, we talk about different things in different areas. And this is one of them in the speed world is, you know, do we use a crossover or do we use a lateral run or a repositioning step or whatever? So what I did, John, way back, and I've talked about this a lot, is I never really just created 
my own patterns, what I did is I watched. I watched and I studied and I just watched a lot of athletes. And what I tried to do was go back to like the 40s and the 50s and 60s and watch professional athletes and, you know, and whatever film I could find on collegiate and whatever other level and see how they moved naturally without guys like you and I, without a skills coach or a performance coach or a speed coach. They just moved naturally. I noticed they did exactly the same thing that guys do now in 2020. We may have just kind of made guys a little stronger now, maybe a little faster, but technically they move the same. So this lateral run, what it basically means and what it is that we're trying to do versus the crossover, which is commonly taught, but doesn't really exist that much. So let me actually go crossover first. What we typically think happens is let's let's just look at base stealing for a second because that's the easiest to identify with. If I have somebody taking my taking a lead and getting getting in a pretty good steal stance or an athletic stance, I'm going to turn to their right to go towards second base. The crossover would typically be described by most coaches as we're going to use that front leg to be able to push off and bring that back leg, so the left leg, around towards second base. The problem is when you watch an athlete move, if you just watch them and study them, and I've studied hundreds and hundreds of athletes stealing and, and, um, and fielding a ball, and they all, it's, it's a similar pattern. What happens is I have to abide by laws of human movement. So for me to begin changing inertia, which is our first law, I have to be able to push my mass in the direction I want to go. Well, the front leg automatically gets deleted from that because it can't push. It can only pull. And we know that's much weaker, especially when I want to be quick. So if I use my left leg and I give a quick push, almost like a quick nudge, that starts moving my center of mass or my belly button towards second base. That gives me a split second to reposition that front foot. And now that front foot becomes just like me coming out of the blocks if I'm a 100-meter sprinter. It's positioned to drive down and back. It's positioned so I can recruit good hamstring and glutes, my hips, and I can really push strong. And then that back leg now comes from being towards first base and immediately gets driven towards second. But the difference is we could say it's crossing over the midline of the body, but really what's happening because that front foot is opened up, it's no longer crossing over that step. It's just running in a normal gait pattern like we would if we were to run, accelerate, or sprint. So the lateral run basically means we allow the backside to push, we allow the front side to open, and then we allow the front side to push. So I call it pop. When I say to my athletes, hey, you know, let's make sure we're, we're, give me some good pop. That just means I want them to push, open, push. I want them to push, move their body to the right, open that front foot, and then push with that front foot down and back, and then the back leg comes through. Now, if we were to do a traditional crossover, like most say, we have these biomechanical issues. So my front leg, my right leg in this case, that femur and that knee and that shin really are kind of blocking the pathway of my backside leg to come through efficiently. Plus, as I mentioned before, I begin pulling with that front leg before my center of mass 
gets closer to second base than that front leg is. Because right now, my front leg, that right leg is closer to second base. My center of mass or my belly button is closer to first base. And it just doesn't add up if we, if we apply laws of physics and laws of movement. So that's kind of the difference between the two. And the crossover, if we really watch, doesn't exist that much in pure acceleration. It might be used in different contexts, but not if I need to run really quick. So I know that was a long-winded answer, but hopefully it gave the listeners kind of a, a picture of what we're looking at between those two skills. No, that was great. And a couple follow-up uh, questions I have with that. Uh, you see some base dealers that start really wide with their feet and then actually step back underneath them. So it, yeah. it appears like a, a false step, for lack of a better term. Um, and then some base dealers who start narrow and get and, and step out. So they actually widen uh, their base on that reposition step. Uh, how do you determine uh, which or who should do uh, which setup? Like, is there a is there a body type or presentation that is better off starting wide and stepping underneath them um, versus starting narrow and stepping wide? Yeah, it's, that's one of the things where you kind of give an athlete a chance to find success or, or allow um, failures or limitations to tell us that we need to maybe add something different or go in a different direction. But you got to give them a chance because here's the thing we always have to understand with that type of movement. And this is the same for an infielder um, having, to, having to move laterally. It's very similar movements. Is if you have an athlete that has maybe shorter limbs and is very powerful, relative strength is you know really good. They can move their body mass easily, quickly, and they have no problem being able to move laterally. That athlete, I don't mind if they go a little wider and I don't mind if they bend their knees deeper because they're powerful. They can push through their weight easily. So now if you get an athlete like that and when they go into their, let's just use the steel again. If they're going into their steel and we notice that front foot steps back, I'm okay with it coming back a little bit as long as the center of mass is moving to the right. Where I draw the line with my athletes, and this fits into my model of movement of the lateral run is one of the rules is that center of mass has to move in the direction we're going to travel. Now, if the front foot moves back under me, maybe because the stance was a little bit wider and that was comfortable for that athlete and they still move really quick that way, I'm okay with that as long as the, as long as they don't like make a physical movement with that lead leg in the center of mass didn't go anywhere. That's that's what I don't want. What I want is that center of mass to move in the direction they're going to go. And if that front leg has to kind of reposition under them, just maybe sometimes it's only two to three inches, four inches, and to give them a positive shin angle. Now, if you take an athlete that's not as strong, not very powerful, I'm going to try to get them to come up a little higher because a lot of times their coaches are going to try to, you know, they're going to force a you know, a square peg into a round hole and make everybody do the same thing. Well, you can't do that because you get this maybe a just a longer, weaker athlete who can't get as low, doesn't have the power, but they're pretty reactive off the ground. I might get them a little higher, maybe a little bit more narrow. And now when they push, as long as they're moving their center of mass and because that front leg is a little bit closer in, you probably won't see them step back simply because they did move the center of mass laterally. It's when that center of mass doesn't move and that front foot comes way back, almost towards the left foot, that's the issue because they made a movement 
but they didn't travel anywhere. That's where you have to kind of draw the line as a coach and say, okay, we got to fix that. So that's what I'm looking for when I evaluate who should do what. And But I think, John, the, the important thing is sometimes you got to give somebody time, right? It's just like learning a new pitch or a new swing, uh, uh, new technique or, or whatever. you got to give them a chance for the brain to say, okay, I've given everything I can. I'm exhausted trying, and that's the best I can do. Then we know how to adjust from there. Uh off the top of your head, can you think of any base, good base stealers that started uh, started with a taller position? I'm picturing, I know Ricky Henderson is kind of probably the gold standard for base stealing, just given yeah. baseball statistics. And I think, and I could be wrong on this, but I'm picturing him with really wide feet, and he actually yes. steps steps back underneath him. He 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 doesn't step back as much as you think, but again. As, as in any any uh, skill, there's a bandwidth. So sometimes when I've watched his film, he did, but it was typically when he was almost more like a secondary lead, or he was he was still kind of creeping out a little bit, and then he would then he would take off. Versus when he set his feet and he locked himself in, much like a track athlete in the blocks, you're set and you're ready to jump. He was pretty good. He didn't have a tremendous setback because he was so powerful in his legs, but. If you take somebody like Buxton, you know, you know, pretty long and and, you know, he might come up a little bit higher um, and and use he would step back with that lead leg. But his center of mass always moved to the right. Uh, Mike Trout, a little bit too, a little different runner, but, you know, big, powerful guy. Same thing. Uh, go, going back a little bit with Jeter. Jeter was a pretty smooth runner. Uh, takeoff. He had pretty, um, com- you know, conventional technique. His arms were in pretty good position, and and so it just depends on um, it depends on their current situation on that particular pitch, what they're doing. Um, but yeah, when you get guys that are a little bit longer, like some of these, you know, you, even going back to like an A Rod, it was a pretty big guy. You know, they they had uh, occasionally where they would step back a little bit because they didn't load very well on that left leg. So they didn't move their mass to the right. They had to almost like turn, then start going, which could have been corrected. But, you know, some of these guys have done it, you know, 30,000 times and it's, you know, it's tough to get them to change. Sure. Uh, You mentioned Jeter's arms. Um, What in particular, not just with Jeter, but um, what in particular are you looking for with arm action uh, or a good arm action for a base dealer? Oh, yeah. Love that question, because here's the thing. When I, I and I, I've worked, been fortunate enough to work with several, um, you know, programs, uh, major league programs. And I when I talk to the players about it, I always say to them, I'm not here to change what's comfortable for you. I'm here to give you reasons why our brain and our body can be more efficient doing things a particular way. And it's like we always say, you can break the rules if you know the rules. But if you don't know the rules and you don't know the effect that they're going to have on you, you, you're probably going to suffer the consequences of not knowing those rules. So the arms are a perfect example. When my elbows are bent and my hands are positioned in front of, let's just say, my, my belt, okay, my belt line. So I'm in a good steel stance. My hands are bent. They're right about my belt level. I have a pretty fast lever there. I can move from my shoulders pretty quick. I can clear that right arm and I can throw that left arm down towards second base. And that's kind of like turning the keys. Now, 
I, I see a lot of players who like to drop that right arm long. Some like to open the right arm and drop the left arm long. They think that it opens them up and gives them a better chance. And I'll always say to them, I'm saying, that's fine as long as you understand what you're taking away from the stance. So now when I start symmetrical, my hands in front of my, my belt, almost like a, almost like a gunslinger ready to, you know, have a uh, shootout in the West, but the hands are a little bit closer towards the belly button that way. Now, when, when I quickly move my hands, we're going to call that an action. Well, in physics, every action, there's a reaction. Well, when my hands move really quick, that tells my backside leg, in this case, my left leg, to push into the ground quickly because I have to be able to support that quick action with my hands. The longer my arms are, the longer it takes for that to occur. And also when I have a long arm and I swing them into position, so I'm actually going to start sprinting, I'm fighting rotation. I'm fighting this torque. And I don't know that I need to have that particular torque. But again, if an athlete's comfortable with it and they're doing the other things well, I just try to help them and support them where they're at. But I just want to make sure they understand when the arms can't move and clear quick, it blocks the shoulders and the chest from turning towards second really quick. And then that delays down the whole chain. So that's the reason I'm so picky with hands is like, let's give them the best chance to support the actual steel action and not have them become a, a deficit to it. So hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, no, I think uh, I think that was great. Um, I want to pivot a little bit away from base stealing and just get into other aspects of the game because I know you're extremely knowledgeable about um, you know defensive setups, and I want to get into uh, generating bat speed a, a little a little bit later. Yeah. Um, the defensively, so if you're let's say you're a casual fan, right? But obviously you're you're always watching movement. Um, what are you looking for in defensive setups from an infielder? Well, the, 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 and this is the, probably the most, uh, maybe a little bit controversial for some people. And again, I go back to almost like that base stealing concept. Some athletes, I'm okay with them getting lower in their stance. Others, I need them higher, but in general, what a baseball infielder needs to be able to do, because I can't think other than tennis, I can't think of a sport that is so explosively fast. Things happen so quick, any poor action, you're, you're out of the play. The ball's by you. It's in the hole, and you don't even have a chance to get to it. But if you, if you can kind of set up a little bit better, I think you're better off. So what I like to look for is almost like in the sport of tennis, as the serve is about to be contacted, the, re, the, the person that's returning the serve does what we call a split step or a jump stop is often called. So with the infielders, I like to see them have this kind of this preload. All it is is they take one or two little creep steps in, and that's dependent on if that's what they like to do. But as long as they're kind of moving forward with their center of mass a little bit, and then they just kind of preload into a split step. So their feet go from narrow on the walk up on the kind of this creeping foot to immediately getting a little bit wider. And that wide stance allows them to be able to move laterally forward or backwards. But when I do this little jump step or this split step and both feet hit, it's like a pre-stretch. And that pre-stretch allows me to have a quicker takeoff. And so I like to see them kind of creep in. Now, here's the part that Sometimes I, I, you know, I, I will have disagreements with coaches on this, and I get it. I understand what their concerns are. 
when a, when an infielder is told to start really low, glove way down, get really, really low, the problem with that is it minimizes how quick they can be when they have to have better range, when they have to get deep into the hole or, or go after a, a, maybe a broken bat, you know, dribbler or a bunt or something. So when they're up a little bit, so when their knees are a little bit straighter, and I'm not talking about standing up straight, I'm just talking about a little bit higher, that allows me to have a better stretch shortening cycle, that quick elastic rubber band, I can like pop and go, pop and go really quick. But when I'm shorter and way low, yeah, I might be down for the ball if it's hitting straight at me, but it's not like I don't have time to drop my hands within that, you know, so many split seconds to get down there. So that's probably the one thing that I look for the most is can this infielder load and explode in any direction as well as get their glove down and be able to make a play on a ball that's hit a line drive straight at them. So that's kind of what I like to see is I don't like them too low because I think they become unathletic, but at the same time, they have to find their sweet spot to be able to feel comfortable to move in any direction. Is hand position the way you would teach it really similar to base stealing in terms of the levers you're trying to create and the height you're, the height that you have? Pretty similar, yeah. Yeah, because... Because again, I think you can drop your glove pretty quick, and I think it's just the nature of the sport. And the the, the more they play, they know exactly their groove of how they're going to do that and execute the the movement. But when the when the hands are a little bit high, you know, maybe like palms up, it almost looks like a volleyball player libero in the back row. They kind of have their palms, elbows bent, and their palms are up, and they're ready to go. And then, but when I have to all of a sudden go hit a hard hit ball, you know, ten feet off to my right or left the arm action helps me as where if my hands were dropped long all the way down, that actually hurts that initial step. Um, so yeah, I, I do. I kind of, and again, find the sweet spot for each player, but I think that helps a lot. Sure. I think, I think that's great. And I don't think that's uh, something that's that prevalent in terms of the way it's taught. Like I know probably all of us growing up at some point we're taught, get really low and get your glove yep. close to the ground and wait and um, the longer you have to wait in that position, the more uncomfortable you get and the, more, the stiffer you get and the less reactive you get. Exactly. Um, and so that, yeah. that makes a ton of sense. Um, as an outfielder, um, what, what defensive setup traits do you see the best outfielders possessing? Yeah, so obviously an outfielder, the biggest difference, the, the, the two biggest difference is the sight line. Okay, so uh, not that they can't be really low and still see the pitch and see the, you know, see the catcher's mitt and, and, and see the batter, but it's easier when they're standing up higher. And, and it depends on where they're standing, especially if you're a center fielder. So um, w- w- the one thing that the advantage they have is obviously they have a little bit more time. And again, going back to my point of this elastic reflex, this stretch, this rubber band action that we have built into our system, if they're, if they're really low in the outfield, they're going to have a hard time moving quick. So I like them a little bit higher, and I like them doing the same thing, like I said before. Is I like them just kind of drop into, as soon as they see that pitch and it's about to get to the catcher, split your feet, kind of lo- preload, and that allows them to have an explosive move in any direction. Um, it allows them to reposition to go deep for a, a you know ball hit back to the warning track, but it allows them to, to also take off and going forward. And the other thing it allows them to do is it allows them to be more um, corrective in a in a poorly read ball. So if they you know see a ball that comes off the bat and it just looks like it's a rocket, but actually it's probably about you know fifteen 
feet to 15 yards short of what they saw, they can hip, they can open their hips, maybe take that first step back and then realize they have to go forward. Well, if they're constantly changing their levels, their height, that diminishes how quick they can be in the direction they have to go. But if they stay with a semi-bent knee, uh, John, it would almost be like the height of a jump shot, right? If you see a guy shooting a foul shot or jump shot, they bend their knees, they bend their hips, they load their ankles, but they're not way down squatting. Kind of the same thing for a baseball outfielder. They can really be explosive there and they can move in any direction, but they can self-correct when they made a bad read a lot easier that way. Sure, I think that's awesome. The the jump shot analogy makes or the uh, the free throw analogy makes a ton of sense because we talk about being high, uh, but I think sometimes people uh, confuse being high with being unathletic. Uh, yeah. Whereas you know everyone shooting a free throw is still in an athletic position, but it's a high athletic position. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so I know uh, just speaking on outfielder stuff, I've seen some of your stuff in the in the past where you talk about um, ability to turn your hips away from your head or turn your head away from your hips. Um, just the, so, so picture for the listeners, outfielder balls hit over their head. They have to still be able to track the ball by looking, let's say over their left shoulder, but their hips are actually pointed, uh, you know, back into the right. Um, so can you talk a little bit about, you know, uh, how you train that kind of stuff and why you train it and where you think it fits in? Yeah. And, and, you know, um, this really, really kind of cool stuff for, especially when we, if we go back to kind of like the first question of what do we do with training young baseball players? These are the kind of things that if, if players, you know, they play a lot in the parks and they play a lot of different sports, they learn these skills, but us as practitioners can help these athletes understand that your ability to disassociate your lower body and your upper body, and also your eyes Disassociate, disassociate your eyes from the direction your body's traveling. So your example is perfect. Got a ball hit over my head. Um, um, I can't turn my eyes to where I'm going to run to because I can't track the ball. So I have to have this freedom in my neck, or we can call it a cervical spine. I have to have some freedom in my thoracic spine just below the neck. And I have to have this ability to move through my hips. Now, the way we can develop that is in the initial stages, we develop it with simple drills like uh, like a karaoke. It's a drill that whether people like to implement those or not, it's not for any other reason than it would be than just doing a basic mobility drill to prepare an athlete to, to practice. So we can teach the athlete and we can say to them, hey, keep your head straight ahead, but I want you to rotate your hips to the right and then rotate your butt to the right, and which that means we're getting a nice swivel. Now I can say, let's do that karaoke again, but I want you to put your head over your right shoulder the entire time. So now we're challenging ends of range of motion and we're finding how do they get the rest of the range of motion if, let's say, my cervical spine doesn't rotate real well. I'm still going to do the drill, but I'm going to find it somewhere else. So there's a series that I have, and I call it my 180 series. So imagine you're standing on, let's just say we're standing on first base, and I said, go run to second base, but when you get halfway, turn around and backpedal the rest of the way. Okay, that would be a 180. All right, so now I'm back out in the outfield, and I'm facing home base. And I start backpedaling, and then all of a sudden on a command or maybe a ball's thrown over my head, I, I turn and I start running towards the, the wall. 
or the fence out in, out in center field. Well, my head has to locate that ball. So we start to disassociate the lower body. The midsection kind of gets lagged a little bit. And then the upper body obviously leads it. And then the head finally comes towards the end. So the ability to be able to do those type of skills maintain a straight line because that's the problem a lot of young kids have. They might be able to not turn their head in the direction their body's going, but they end up running almost like a C pattern versus a straight line. So this 180 series allows me to do it forward in turning to backwards. I can go backwards in turning to forward, and then I can delay my head to look in the direction that I was going and then go fast with my head to look in the direction that I'm currently going. And what that does is that teaches body awareness, spatial, uh, spatial awareness. And as a coach, it allows me to assess, oh man, this, this kid has a real hard time going over their left side, but their right side, they're pretty good. So then I can, you know, I can kind of program maybe a little extra work going over their left side. So that's kind of what it is. It's really fun stuff to do. And it's so effective. And I've worked with this with major league players down to little league guys. And it's amazing how some people struggle with it until they get the pattern down. Then they become real efficient with it. I think that's awesome. And it's another one of those things that uh, you bring up that uh, the training community doesn't necessarily look into or traditionally hasn't done. I know when I first saw that stuff probably about a year ago now, it was a, a little bit of a light bulb like, oh, wow, we've never actually trained that. Um, even though all of our athletes are expected to do that once they get into their season. Um, yeah. The other thing that's similar to that, and it's actually something that Ty brought up to me recently, um, our f uh, friend of ours, Ty Terrell, who works for the Hawks, yeah. but um, is he called it curvilinear running. Uh, so basically mimicking as if you're running around the bases, um, just getting used to actually turning at full speed. Um, is that something that you would incorporate at all in programming? Definitely, without a doubt, because the thing and, and, and you what you do with that is you, you 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 first of all, you're teaching them in the sport of baseball, they have to be able to turn to the left. So very much like a 400 meter runner in track and field, right? You, you just take a left turn and you're you're pretty good. So when I run the bases and I'm coming off first base and going towards second, eventually towards third and home, I have different actions in my feet, right? I have one that's going to pronate a lot, one that's going to supinate a little bit more. And so, and then learning how can I fight those forces because there's this, this kind of this unseen force that's always pulling me towards the fence, towards outfield. And if I stand up too straight, in, in other words, if I stand vertical as if I'm standing statically, the, the force that's pulling me out towards center field is going to win. It's going to pull me off my line. I'm not going to be very effective. So one of the things we try to do is teach the athletes, can you maintain, and we do this gradually by building speed from 50% and work our way up, can we maintain high levels of speed and still maintain a, a pathway that's conducive to us being effective base runners? Um, now, going along with that, is we don't often think of baseball as a deceleration sport in terms of foot speed. We think of it, we accelerate, we make a play, plays over. Well, when you get a first base, or excuse me, a, a, a ball that's hit and they round first base and they kind of get a little stretch saying, hey, I don't know, maybe I can go. But then all of a sudden they put the brakes on and come back. That ability to hold that turn 
and then quickly perform what I call like just a it's just let's say a rotational stop. It'd be just like running a shuttle run, really. We have to be able to plant the foot and then quickly redirect back to first base. So it's all relative to how well we can curve and run on that curve and then be able to manage our center of mass to stop it and get back. So yeah, big fan of that stuff. And I also think when you're dealing with the younger kids, you got to get them to run both ways because that's just helping overall athleticism and symmetry. So yeah, definitely I'm a big fan of that. And that probably makes sense in terms of the base dealing stuff too. Like a training a higher level guy on a lateral run step, you're probably talking left to right most of the time. Um, yeah. Younger guys, you're probably spending equal amounts of time or, or close to it. Is that correct? Yeah, definitely. Because if they're, especially because usually most players, especially when they're younger, they play both ways. So you, you, you know, you're, we know when you're going to steal a base, you're trying to get to the right, but you might have to get your hands back on the bag. But when you're an infielder, or an outfielder, you don't know. You're going to have to go right and left, oftentimes just as equally. So we want to make sure that they have that ability to use that lateral run step in both directions. Awesome. Um, going back to some base running stuff, actually. So when you when you have a, a younger athlete in, and it, it doesn't even matter if it's a younger athlete, it could be anyone. Uh, let's say for some reason you didn't ask them what sport they played, and you just watch them take off. You watch them accelerate. Um, what are the dead giveaways to you that, all right, this person's a baseball player? Um, uh, John, just to clarify, do you mean more like if they're just taking off and running from a staggered stance or yep. if they just... Uh, yeah, from a staggered stance. Like, let's say it's like, all right, let me see you run 15, 20 yards. Um, yep. Just no coaching. What are the giveaways that that's a baseball player? Well, one of the things that I see a lot with um, baseball players is... They don't tend to always open up the stride as much. Um, they don't tend to push and kind of get like, you know, more towards that upwards posture that we might see like a, a soccer player who tends to sometimes have a shorter stride, but they stand upright more. Basketball players stand upright more, right? Baseball, because whether I'm a defender or I'm a base runner, at some point I'm going to get down. I'm going to get my hands down. So there, there's a lot of times a forward lean. And which means we're not always going to have as much leg separation as possible because they're trying to get started so quick and they turn their legs over really fast. And it's funny because it was probably about two and a half, three weeks ago, I assessed a high school kid who happens to be a baseball player. But first thing I did is here, it's starting to stagger stance, take off and run. And that's exactly what he had. Very short, uh, quick turnover, but not much separation. And he had a fairly decent upward body forward lean like he was trying to get his hands down to slide into second base or third base and so those are some of the things that I'll see and along with that is the shorter arm carriage so rather than having a nice long forward and backwards arm swing in the first couple steps it tends to be shorter and a little bit tighter but that's one area I try to correct them because then they can actually accelerate better. So, yeah, those are some of the things that I typically will see with a baseball guy. I think that, that makes a ton of sense. From what I've seen with our, our youth guys, I think the like frontside mechanics on arm action is difficult to teach a lot of times with the baseball guys because they're, yeah. like you said, so used to their hands coming down into something, whether that's to dive or slide into a base, um, whether that's to go field the ground ball or to if you're an outfielder. Uh, run and scoop ball up but um, that's that forward lean and hands that don't really get through in the front is something yeah. that I feel like I see all the time with that 
Um, yeah. And then from a, like an athletic development standpoint, uh, for us, just in terms of getting overall speed up, that's something that we spend a lot of time on. Yeah. And the other thing we forget about, and you see this in other sports such as tennis or lacrosse, is when you run with a glove in your hand, you're, if you want your hand to move quickly, you have to bend more at the elbow. So now I can move that lever faster. But if I try to run with a long arm and I have the weight of that glove, especially if I'm a younger kid, that's hard to do. And it, it slows my gait down. But if I bend my elbows more, and that's why sometimes we don't see them get the arm gait that we would see, on, let's say, a track athlete who who is, you know, the ideal form. But um, so, yeah, so sometimes we got to understand, yeah, the glove distorts the pattern a little bit. And rightfully so, because it's a it's a heavier implement than just the weight of their hand. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. I think it's, it's also something that we probably also forget about um, the fact that they are, you know, the glo- it's not like the glove is changing hands. So they're, yeah. they're constantly dry, uh, driven to one side repeatedly yep. when they run or when they play. Um, what uh, are there any other like main mistakes that you see the baseball community uh, consistently making when it comes to training speed? Well, you know, I, I think some of the things if we, you know, and there, there are many things that I think we have to um, that we have to understand is when I see especially youth programs or even travel programs like an AAU type program is a lot of times the coaches will spend they'll say, OK, we're going to work on speed now, but they give very little recovery time. It's more like almost like an interval type training, like they'll sprint to second base and then they'll jog back to first base, then they sprint to second base, or you know, first, second, third, and then jog back. And so some of the mistakes that we're making, and not that that stuff is wrong if you're trying to improve their conditioning and maybe their endurance of speed, but if you want to make athletes faster, and I can't think of too many sports of where you have to be so explosively quick and fast than baseball because it happens so fast. Pitches are so fast and the ball coming off the bat is so fast that you have to be quick. So if I'm not in like great condition shape, I can still be a high effective baseball player if I have good speed. So I think doing too much conditioning when the goal is speed. Again, I'm not against conditioning. I'm just saying when it's again, when it's for speed. And then the other thing is if we go back to kind of earlier in our our, uh, talk is when the athletes are asked to get really low um, on infield, on, you know, any other position, maybe even base stealing or outfield or whatever, when they're asked to get really, really low, because we think that that's a good thing. But what happens is we put our athletes in such a tough position to be able to be explosive and to be successful that we end up getting frustrated with the athlete when really what we did is we gave them a bad strategy. So I think allowing the athlete to kind of show us how they move best and then work with them to maybe make it a little bit cleaner, a little bit better, and still abide by human laws of movement, which you know none of us are going to be if we want to be the best movers. So, so yeah, those are kind of the things that I look at, and I think that we have to make sure we work on it. And then not to not to you know uh, belabor the point here is. We have to understand that when an athlete moves their feet in a certain way, so let's say all of a sudden a bun occurs and the the infielder repositions their feet. In other words, maybe one foot all of a sudden jabs behind them to take off and a coach says, no, 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 that's a false step. You're not going as fast. Well, 
first of all, the athlete didn't consciously think to do that. They just reacted. When that occurs, the body is trying to self-correct from a position of where they can't accelerate as fastly to a position where they can accelerate quicker. And they're using things such as stretch shortening and stiffness and all that. So those are some of the things that are a pet peeve of mine is when we try to correct something the athlete does intuitively that actually helps them move better. Awesome. I love that answer. Um, particularly a couple of my follow-up questions unrelated. We're going to be about conditioning related stuff for baseball. Um, yeah. I think we see that all the time. So I think part of the success that we have with college kids over the summer um, is it's the only two, three month block of the year where they're not doing a ton of endurance type training yeah. that, they, that they have to do with their teams or they think they're supposed to do throughout the year. And then all of a sudden we get them for 10, 12 weeks and they focus on just getting stronger and their their conditioning, if you want to call it that, is more speed focused um, versus endurance focused. Um, yes. And, you know, they they start throwing harder. They, they put on body mass, et cetera. Um, what uh, if let's say, you know, hypothetical world, you were running a college baseball program. Um, what would the conditioning for a pitcher between starts look like? Yeah, well, so I, I think the important things about conditioning that we often don't look at. So, so a lot of times when most coaches look at conditioning, they consider it as, you know, can this person sustain a, a heart rate for a certain amount of time? So and obviously that falls under the lines of endurance and conditioning. But when I look at conditioning, I need it to do a couple things for my athletes. I need it to be able to allow them to sustain uh, a work capacity and build a work capacity to do more work during training and or practice. So we're maybe we got a two hour practice and maybe they have to go after that. They have to go to the strength coach or, you know, whatever it may be. The, the ability to have um, uh, a capacity, an aerobic capacity to be able to sustain that to me is really, really important. So to me in baseball, I think you've got this aerobic capacity, which I would spend time on, but I'm going to do that not always in just this long distance running or riding a bike or rowing or whatever. It's going to be through sub-maximal work efforts. Maybe it's doing some medicine ball work. Maybe it's doing some uh, calisthenics. Maybe it's doing some skipping and different variations for a sustained period of time. And it's keeping their heart rate in a range, you know, anywhere between maybe 130, 150, 125, 150 for a sustained time of maybe 20 to 25 minutes, 30 minutes, but doing things that are helping them become effective movers as well. Now, that's going to build not only the, the movement capacity of the drills that I'm using, so I get some more bang for my buck than just having them go off on a long run, but I'm also, again, building this capacity to be able to sustain work for a longer period of time throughout their day. And it can even help them in non-baseball related stuff academically and they're moving. They're just going to feel better. So there's where I think the benefit is. Now, if I have a pitcher just, just you know, pitch a full, you know, pretty maybe a full game or got a good six, five, five innings in or six innings or whatever, and um and, and I want to do some work in between with them, it would certainly entail the types of things that I just talked about. But I want to make sure that they're maintaining the ability to do the skills that we're working on really, really well. So for example, maybe we're doing a body weight uh, squat 
uh, workout with, you know, maybe 10 reps and then immediately going to like a, a karaoke type drill to work on mobility of the hip. And then they get to the other side and they do some, maybe some kind of shoulder care, arm care work. And then they do a karaoke back and then they go back and do another drill. So similar patterns of that nature that help them recover. Okay. So we're going to get some great blood flow. We're going to help some recovery, hopefully help some repair, but we're still working on the capacity to be a, a great mover, a good athlete and work on maybe undoing some of the damage that the pitching does to them because it's such a violent, big open stride pattern and a big deceleration moment. So those are the kind of things that I would do, John, that help them stay athletic, build capacity to recover and be able to do more work. And then hopefully kind of help, you know, uh, help recover some of the damage that occurs in the body during the, the game that they pitched at. Awesome. I think that makes a ton of sense and is definitely uh, practical or practical and hopefully can be implemented by, you know, by the college pitchers and, and coaches listening. Um, last, uh, I guess last main topic here, um, I know we have probably about 10 minutes left, but um, I want to talk a little bit about some hitting related stuff um, because we haven't touched on it at all. Yeah. Um, so we've used, we've used med ball throws for years to build rotational power. Um, one aspect of, of your system uh, that I think a lot of places maybe don't do or aren't aware of uh, is this concept of med ball fake throws. Um, so can you talk about med ball fake throws uh, particularly as it relates to developing bat speed or generating more exit velocity. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for bringing that up because it's uh, a and, and you know where it started. It actually started in 1991 when I was at a tennis academy in Florida, and I was trying to do kind of what you're you, the question you're asking me. I was, I was trying to help these younger players up to the professional professional players pretty had pretty good racket speed, but uh, some of them lacked in certain areas. So. I kind of, you know, I was always the type that I, I just would start thinking and say, okay, what can I do? And that's how these things kind of came about. And they've evolved over the last, you know, three decades. But so when you do a fake throw, a couple of things that you're doing is you, you have to train the coordination of the human system to be able to release for speed. Okay. So when I throw a ball, when I swing a bat, I have to release, generate force. And that's a coordinated pattern of itself. It's summation. It's, it's, you know, being able to be, you know, on the inside of that foot, being able to create power through my lower, my lower extremities into my hip and my core up all the way through. Now, when we implement the, the fake throw, what we're doing is we're working on the ability to generate that speed very quickly, but then being able to stabilize the spine um, the, the, uh, shoulder girdle, you know, so the, the, and it depends on the direction we're going, but we, we integrate right from the foot through the entire body has to not only generate the speed of the ball, but then instantly being able to decelerate the speed of that ball without having excessive rotation and, uh, you know, maybe just forces that we don't want on the body. Now, if I'm going to release the ball, like I love the stuff you guys do with the throws. I'm a huge fan of those. That's actually a release. The body uncoils. It releases through the ball. So it's a very nice, not gradual, but it's a, um, it's a complete release of the action. When you learn to do a fake throw, 
It's stopping the ball quickly before the movement ends, okay, or before the release of it. And that, that forces this internal stiffness that helps the athlete, I guess for lack of a better uh, phrase, is train the core. I'm just trained to be stiff. And the core can mean whatever you want because I, I include adductors, abductors. I include the whole thing and all the way up through my T-spine and everything and they include the shoulder. So it, 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 it helps them be able to decelerate it. So now if I want to get very specific with this, I could have a, let's say we have a right-handed pitcher. I could have them up in the stand, so they're holding their left leg high uh, parallel. Then I can have them push off with that right leg, turn and rotate the left leg, stop on that left leg as if they were doing a pitch stride, but then have that medicine ball come and then what we would say a level two, which would mean my arms are halfway. I would bring that ball just about to the kneecap and stop it quick. So I'm learning to decelerate forces. So it's another way of kind of almost like taking the weight room and speed training and meshing them together to create this violent, um, and I use violent in a, in a means of uh, a good way, not a bad way, of being able to violently stop the, bo- the, the body quickly and create this internal stiffness, which helps the entire kinetic chain. So hopefully that explains it. It's, it's a lot easier to see this stuff, but there's all different kind of patterns you can use from infield, outfield, pitching, throwing, hitting. And I think it's just great stuff to help, especially with our younger athletes, learning how to stabilize the body without having to have too much, um, uh, too much feedback. We let the ball kind of give the feedback. Yeah. I, I love the make with um, the med ball fake throws. So we, uh, we never used them before probably a year ago or so, but we used them a lot, especially with our younger guys and started implementing it with our older guys. Once we, um, once we, you know, had our, had our, our, our systems down with how to implement them and we're going to continue to use them more, um, throughout, you know, this summer and into next off season. That's uh, great. Lee, well, uh, well, I just, if, if, can I mention one more thing? Yeah, absolutely. That, uh, just real fast. Yep. So the, the great thing with the, the, being able to create this kind of this innate stiffness. It's a, it's a stiffness that occurs because of this fast moving mass and momentum is it creates an opportunity for the body to be able to manage uh, that the, the new stability that it has. And anytime we have new stability and we have this greater ability to stabilize, it allows us to unleash power greater because now we have new stability. We can do it. So if I, if I was unable to, to be able to manage this mass and momentum, my body might say, ah, I don't know if I'm going to let you go that hard because I don't think you can handle it. Well, the fake throw stuff kind of says, all right, yeah, now I can really handle that stuff. Now I can release it better when, I'm, when it's ready to do that. So I think that's kind of important for people to understand. It's not just about doing the exercise for the core. It's about letting the nervous system say, yeah, I think I can do that. I think I can stabilize now that several joints here and I can now really go hard on this. So it's kind of a fun, fun strategy to use. And if you guys as listeners are having trouble picturing some of this stuff, because it, it, it is a little obscure. Um, I know we're going to get into in a minute, minute or two here, um, different resources you could, you could look up that Lee has, and he's got a lot of stuff on YouTube, especially a lot of the fake throws that we're talking about. Um, Lee, you ready for a couple fun questions? I am. All right. First baseball game you ever attended? It was, uh, 1975, 75 or 76. I went to Yankee stadium, watched Lou Brock, Thurman Munson, uh, Chris Chell, um, uh, Greg Nettles, 
uh, Mickey Rivers, all these guys in Yankee Stadium. And, uh, and of course, I was a fan of Lou Brock because he was a base dealer. And I liked Mickey Rivers. And Willie Randolph was young. And, and uh, yeah, that was awesome. That was fun. Cool. That would have been the first year that the new stadium reopened up, right? 75? Yes. Right around yes. there because they were in shape for a couple of years. That's right. So. Yep. All right. So wrapping up here, um, other than yourself, uh, what resources should baseball players and coaches look into about speed development? About speed? Well, I, again, I, I certainly not to you know, say this because I'm just talking to you guys, but the stuff that you guys do relates to the ability to be faster. Certainly anything that you guys have is, uh, you know, fantastic. Um, you know, I think if you look at any other stuff, companies like Exos, Mike Boyle has um, some great stuff, and he's certainly worked with high-level players, and obviously his experience with the Sox and and stuff. He does, you know, phenomenal, phenomenal work with them. So I think any of the really well-established facilities that understand conceptual training and strategies of how to move better, I think are fantastic. So some of the big hitters like Mike and certainly Mark Verstegen, Nick Winkleman, who actually works in rugby but had great input with with baseball guys. And so I think guys like that are fantastic because the foundation of just human movement is so solid. And then I think the baseball stuff takes over from there. So uh, one thing I actually forgot to ask, and I, I meant to ask this a while ago, um, but I think it, I think it falls into this category too. Uh, you talk a lot about developing your eye as a coach. Yeah. Uh, how do you recommend younger coaches, either in the strength and conditioning field or baseball coaches that are, that are trying to learn more about movement? Uh, what are kind of the best ways to go about just developing your eye? Yeah, I, I, without a doubt, and this is how I started because again, I had said I didn't have access to a lot of stuff, but I did have access to a big old clunky video camera and I'd watch old film. If you watch movement, so if you're a young coach who doesn't really have a model yet, you don't have a model of what movement should look like with a, with a baseball swing or a pitch or a throw or a run or anything should look like, just watch a lot of film and start to look at what's the foot doing, what is the knee doing, what's the hip doing, what's the upper body do as they go through these actions, whether it's base stealing or swinging or throwing. What will happen is you'll start to see commonalities. Without even having somebody tell you, you should look for this, you'll start to see, ah, gosh, every time this guy does that, that's what I see. And I see that across whether it's a young kid or an older athlete. I see the same thing. So that's how I developed my eye. Then I started to say, okay, what does biomechanics and what do physics tell me? And that's how I developed, uh, developed my understanding of what I was seeing. And then nowadays, I strongly encourage to use their phone or if they have an iPad, videotape and just play it back, watch from the feet up and just keep working through the kinetic chain. And then all of a sudden they'll be able to say, okay, that's really what the body's trying to do based on the skill. They might have to do it a little bit different because a hit is different than a throw, but a steal from first base, a throw from, you know, uh, third base to first and a, and a hit have similar qualities but they're just different because of that skill. And you develop those eyes by understanding what does human movement mean first. Then you can say, okay, this is what the specific skill does. I love that answer. And I think anytime any coach under the age of probably 35, 40, you know, hears about the process of setting up a video camera and having to replay it and et cetera, we're, we, um, you know, we're, we all realize how fortunate we are that 
We have so <laughs> so many so many resources at our hands, um, and literally in our hand most of the time, yeah. um, to just get better. So just filming stuff and watching it, and and watching sports on TV, which you can pause your TV and rewind it and watch specific movements, and it's just I think a lot easier now uh, if people are willing to put in the work. Yeah. Oh, without a doubt. Well, I don't know if you saw, but I did a breakdown of a couple professional athletes. Some of them, much, you know, they've been retired for years now. But all I did is that's what I did. I used my iPad. I, I happened to catch it on TV or on uh, YouTube, and I just filmed it so that I could use the access of my software that I have to break down film. I just, I just filmed it off YouTube, and then I could watch it as much as I want, and I could compare and contrast. So nowadays, it's so easy to do that. So yeah, definitely use your Use the, the technology we have because that helps develop the eyes much quicker. Definitely. And, and going into your stuff now, so uh, what, what resources do you have that are, that are applicable for, or accessible right now for coaches? Uh, well, thank you for allowing me to share that. Well, I think if they go to leetaf.com, there's where they can find any kind of resources that they want to have, you know, several things for baseball, um, other sports in general, not sports, but other movement patterns in general, just to develop a better overall athlete. But I really encourage uh, listeners go to uh, just search, you know, Google Letaf YouTube and it'll come up. I pretty much every day try to put something out there, uh, speed related, even for older adults. Um, but I do a lot for young. I probably have two, 300 videos, you know, backlogged on there that they can find. Um, and then I try to put stuff on the other social media outlets. Uh, and I, and I, it's funny cause I started doing this because I know for so many years, it was hard for me as a young coach to find resources. And I didn't want that to be the case now. So I try to share as much as I can just to kind of help the learning curve of, you know, young or older coaches maybe wanting to learn something different or have a new strategy to add to their system. So yeah, any, any of those, they can pretty much find, uh, whatever they, whatever they're looking for. Awesome. And I know, especially right now with, uh, most of us, you know, stuck at home for, for at least now, um, there's plenty of time to dig deep. And like you said, I know you've been doing it for, for at least a couple of years where you post stuff on YouTube pretty regularly. Right. I mean, yeah, um, that's the, the, that stuff goes back, goes back, uh, you know, more than last week, put it that way. Um, yeah. any, anywhere else that listeners can find more, uh, uh, more about you, whether it's Instagram or, um, yeah. any, anywhere else. Yeah. So any of the social medias, if they go to at Lee Taft, so, uh, I put something out at least once or twice and I try to do a lot of video breakdown actually. So it's funny, John, I have a, I, have, I mentioned I have a 12 year old son who were on today would be day number eight in a row of teaching him how to do a particular lift. And it's just for fun. It's, it's, we're teaching him. He, he wants to do it. He likes it. We do it about 10 minutes, but I'll often every few days I post on it and I kind of do a little video breakdown of it. So what it does again, it's just helping coaches being able to develop their eyes of particular movements and um and that's really what i try to do it for so anything at lee taft i put it on instagram i'll put it on twitter um linkedin i'll put stuff and then also you know facebook or uh, and then of course youtube so yeah so any of those they can pretty much find me and um, i always get back to people if they ever want to reach out to me just uh i get back to people as soon as possible all right. I think that that's it for today, Lee. Appreciate you coming on. Uh, I think hopefully the listeners got a lot out of this and, um, you know, hopefully it can be a good use of time for them uh, within the next week or two while we're stuck at home. Um, 
but uh, that concludes the episode for today. So I appreciate all you guys listening. And uh, stay tuned for future updates about the upcoming episodes. Hi, everyone. It's Eric again. And now that the podcast with Lee is wrapped up and you've had a chance to really experience some of his expertise, I think it's important to wrap up as we talk a little bit more about a great resource that he's offering now at an awesome discount. Um, I'm going to speak from my own experience when it comes to certifications. I always ask three specific questions. The first one is, will this experience provide me with specific information I wouldn't otherwise have? The second question is, will this experience provide information I can immediately apply in my interaction with my clients and my staff? And the third question is, is this experience delivered by one of the best in the business? Can this individual speak from perspective or are they just an academic who hasn't worked with an actual person in person in years? Um, So in other words, I'll do a certification for knowledge, but not necessarily for resume building. You'll see a lot of people that'll just chase the alphabet soup after their name. I want to make sure there are practical strategies that have been implemented in the trenches, not in some magical theoretical world. And that's where I think Lee really differentiates himself um, with this CSAC course. Um, It's something that's really rooted in his experience, not just as a coach, but also as a teacher who's spoken at tons of seminars, taught coaches um, really how not just to utilize good cues, but how to use them efficiently so they can get results really quickly. Um, Like I said, this was a course that was actually recorded at our Massachusetts facility that I've gotten behind as a a mandatory viewing for all of our staff members. So I'd highly encourage you guys to check it out at ericcressy.com backslash CSAC. It's $150 off this week and I can't recommend it highly enough.